Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Who wouldn't like to visit a tropical paradise? Virgin Islands National Park in the Caribbean is one such paradise. It resides on the island of St. John and features beaches sparkling white and lined by palm trees and other tropical vegetation. Those beaches are washed by warm, turquoise waters that provide habitat for sea turtles the size of trunks, colorful fishes like blue tang and parrotfish, and even menacing barracuda. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. While the National Park might seem idyllic from above water, beneath the surface of the Caribbean Sea, the once vibrant coral reefs have been impacted by a bleaching event caused by abnormally high ocean temperatures compounded by disease that together could have devastating consequences. Snorkel or scuba dive in the National Park's waters, or those that surround Virgin Islands Coral Reef National Monument, Buck Island Reef National Monument, or Salt River Bay National Historical Park and Ecological Preserve, and in many directions you'll see a seemingly lifeless seascape. To better understand what's going on, we're joined today by Jeff Miller, a National Park Service fisheries biologist who, before he retired back in 2021, worked with the South Florida Caribbean Inventory and Monitoring Network on developing a coral and fisheries monitoring program. We'll be back in a minute with Jeff. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me, Kurt. Now, before we get into the coral bleaching event, let's talk about the incredible and gorgeous setting in the waters surrounding these park units before coral bleaching events occurred so often. When my wife and I visited a decade or so ago, we spent every day snorkeling in those wonderfully colorful waters. Could you recreate the scene of a healthy reef environment for us? Yeah, so um, I began diving in 1980, well, 1976, and in the Caribbean in 1984. And even when I got there, people were like, wow, you should have seen it before the diadema died off, the, the black spiny sea urchins. But reefs are continually under threat. Virgin Islands National Parks and National Parks in the Caribbean have been protecting these coral reef environments. So they've been some of the healthier ones in the Caribbean over the past many decades. A healthy, vibrant coral reef is composed of lots of live 
corals, hard corals, soft corals, corals with hard skeletons, corals with soft skeletons. There's sponges, there's anemones, there's organisms that live within the spaces, within the structure that this, these reefs provide. And it's the, the architecture, the three-dimensionality, the, the structure of the reef, the multiple levels of the reef that then attracts all those other organisms that then attract the fish. So think of the reefs as vibrant cities and communities that then attract people to those cities and those people are, are other big fish. So a living reef is a living, thriving city underwater that attracts numerous visitors. And those visitors are marine fish that come by and, and just make the coral reef system incredibly vibrant uh, that we've come to know, love and appreciate. I know very, very little about corals and coral reefs. I know there's a, the staghorn and the elkhorn corals and, of course, the, the brain corals, and that's about the extent of my knowledge. But I'm sure you've got dozens and dozens of species of coral. What what makes them so so vibrant in different colors? Yeah, you know, there's about 40 different species of Caribbean corals. Um, maybe 25 of those commonly occur and are are real ubiquitous. So corals are really cool. They're part animal. They're also part plant. And their foundation, their structural support is almost like a rock. So the coral animal itself exists only in the thin veneer on the outside of the coral structure. The coral animal secretes a skeleton that is its foundation, that is its body. And the coral tissue is, is surrounding the outer edge of that skeleton. Then living within the tissue of the coral, the very thin layer of tissue, like living within our skin, living within the thin layer of tissue are millions and millions of plant cells called zooxanthellae. Those zooxanthellae, you can think of them as like solar panels because they're the things that help give the coral its energy through the miracle photosynthesis. And those zooxanthellae also help give the coral its color. So back to your original question of how do coral become so colorful? It's by the types and the concentration of zooxanthellae that exists within the pigment and tissue of the coral. And that all exists in the outer skin, the outer surface of the amazing coral structure itself. So you've got an animal that's a coral, that's a very small polyp. They're all connected together. That forms a colony multiple colonies form together to form reefs. So different corals attract different creatures that give them different colors? Yeah, the, they're not really creatures, but they're plants that are inside the corals. And they're different clades of these symbionts that live within the coral. And it's a combination of the pigment of the coral tissue. Some corals have more pigment than others. And the density and the types of those clades of zooxanthellae that live within the coral tissue that help give them the different colors. Most of the corals are kind of greenish, brownish, because of the photosynthetic pigments that exist within the zooxanthellae that are in the tissue of the corals. Most of the time, the, the corals get their color from those zooxanthellae. Um, it's in the bleaching events that we'll talk about a little later that their color really begins to change. 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, we're going to get into it right now. How do you define coral bleaching? I mean, it's it's coming into the the vernacular these days, unfortunately. Um, what, what goes on with coral bleaching? So it has nothing to do with the chemical bleach or the compound bleach. It's just kind of a, a colloquial phrase that it turned white. So if I put too much bleach in my clothes, it looks like I bleached them. So that's how it got got connected to corals, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. When corals are stressed, and in this case, primarily the stress is elevated water temperature and increased amounts of UV radiation. When those two factors combine, and it's predominantly the heat stress, the relationship between the plant, the zooxanthellae that live in their tissue, and the coral animal itself goes bad. In fact, during that photosynthetic process, when the water temperatures are elevated outside, we'll call it the comfort level of the coral, those zooxanthellae release a toxin that the coral can't deal with. So the coral has one opening and it basically vomits those zooxanthellae out of their body. It releases them into the water column. Therefore, it's releasing the things that do those two very important roles. One is it gives them their color. The other and very important roles, it gives them their energy. The corals are animals, so they're feeding, but most corals get most of their energy from the photosynthesis that is done by these zooxanthellae that live inside their tissue. So to define coral bleaching is when the coral is stressed, it generally releases the zooxanthellae that help give them its color. Therefore, they're losing the part of their body that gives them their pigment. Therefore, what you're looking at is almost the clear tissue and the whitish skeleton underneath. That's why the coral appears more white in color, is you're looking through that, that nearly clear skeleton at the skeletal uh, structure underneath the coral tissue. Now, the coral can recover from this if the stress goes away. They slurp the zooxanthellae back inside. They nurture them and grow them. The zooxanthellae utilize the coral's waste products for their energy, and they give their photosynthetic byproducts to the coral, and everybody begins to be happy again. But that's only if the stress goes away. How new is the phenomenon of coral bleaching? I mean, has it always been around? It just is, is happening more frequently now? Yeah, I believe it was originally described in a, a paper by Alfred Mayor out of the Carnegie Research Lab in Dry Tortugas National Park. It wasn't certainly a national park at that time, but there was a, I believe there's a Carnegie lab there, and I believe it was Alfred Mayor in 1902 or 1901, wrote a paper and described what happens when corals got in very shallow water and then were exposed to air that they lost their color in and bleached. Um, I am aware of, of mass bleaching episodes. So in the Caribbean, when our little ocean, our little sea gets too warm, it, it the Caribbean is a fairly small body of water on the global scale. And when it gets warm in the Caribbean, it kind of spreads all around. So a mass bleaching occurs when it occurs in that Caribbean region. And I think it was 19... 86 was the first one I became aware of. I was working in the Cayman Islands at the time. And that was the first time I became aware of bleaching. And 
And that's one of the earliest records, I believe, of mass coral bleaching. And they have become more and more frequent since then. And and that's not comprehensive. There may have been a bleaching episode before that. I'm just not aware of it. Virgin Islands National Park, we've been measuring reef depth water temperature for, geez, I think it's coming up on like 30 years now. Uh, there's data loggers out there. There's not somebody with a thermometer, but the data loggers um, record water temperature every two hours at reef depth. And it was really interesting. If you look at the number of bleaching episodes in a decade from like 1985 to 1995, the number of bleaching episodes from 1995 to 2005, and then from 2005 to 2015, if you split up that 30-year period into three-year decades, the number of times that the water temperature, the daily average, is above the coral's comfort level has increased dramatically. So from being the outlier in the first 10 years, meaning one bleaching episode in that first 10-year period, to five or six in the second year period, 10-year period, to nine in the third year period. So now bleaching is almost uh, an every year occurrence. Every year. Some corals bleach to some extent. It, it is much more common. A mass bleaching episode, life we've experienced this year, is where most all corals in a large geographic area are suffering the thermal stress and are bleaching. So every year here in Virgin Islands National Parks, we get some corals that are more thermally sensitive, will begin to pale, lose some of their color in August or September. You never used to see that. You'd never see any evidence of a thermal stress back in the 80s and early 90s. Now it's, yeah, every year you can see those more sensitive corals show signs of thermal stress almost every year. The big mass bleaching like we have now is much more rare. The last one I really remember being this bad was in 2005. So the fact that the average daily water temperature exceeds the coral's comfort level almost every year now is is what's really concerning that used to be unusual but now it's it's normal so the trend is the reef depth seawater temperature is increasing in that 30-year data set that we have this is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with Jeff Miller, a recently retired National Park Service fisheries biologist about coral bleaching in uh, Virgin Islands National Park and surrounding units of the park system. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, Please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. 
They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Adventure awaits. Explore the beauty of our national parks with Explorer Maps. Whether you're captivated by the breathtaking landscapes of Yellowstone or the wild shores of Acadia, Explorer Maps has a perfect map to connect you to your favorite place. Visit explorermaps.com to find your next adventure. Jeff, I'm, I'm wondering, um, when these bleaching events occur, how tolerant are the corals? I mean, can they bounce back quickly? Can uh, some take time and, and some, I imagine, never bounce back? So um, I try and describe this by you and I are, are the same species, but we have different thermal tolerances. When it gets down to 70 degrees here, I put another quilt on my bed. You know, and um, it gets to 70 degrees where you are and, and you put on a pair of shorts. So corals have different thermal tolerances as well here in the Caribbean. Um, some are much more thermally tolerant, some species, and, and others just are more vulnerable to, to that thermal stress. So there, it, it's fairly well known which ones are more sensitive than others. and you know, they are sort of the pre-indicators of a bleaching event coming on. So it'll, it'll get into August and early September when the water temperatures are really warming up and we'll go, oh no, you know, we're beginning to see some of the plate corals, some of the fire corals. They're starting to, to look more pale and there are early indicators. They seem to be more vulnerable because they've been stressed longer. As let's say some of the star corals, there is the large star coral, Montastria cavernosa, that is pretty resistant to coral bleaching. I mean, its color really hangs in there a long time. And we saw some of those bleaching this year because the water temperature was so warm. So it was well into the warm, warm times towards the end of September. And those large star corals, those Montastria cavernosa, were still mostly well colored. I mean, they were normally colored, whereas some of the plate corals, they had been bleached white for four or five weeks already. So that that whiteness means they're starving. I mean, they're really needing their their energy needs aren't being met when they they have that white color. So as the water now is cooling down, we're getting back more into our normal water temperatures. Um, those plate corals, it just takes longer for them to get their color back because it takes longer for them to get into their comfort zone where those corals that bleached last kind of get their color back first. So the whole whiteness just really means that their nutritional needs aren't being met. So they're starving. And the longer that starving takes place, the more vulnerable the coral, corals are to mortality. You know, Jeff, um, I know you retired from the Park Service, but you still um, volunteer to help out with the um, South Florida Caribbean Inventory and Monitoring Network folks. So you're in the water pretty regularly. What are you seeing these days? I mean, uh, are there some corals that are, you're surprised they haven't bounced back? Is it a growing problem? 
so I get to go in the water at least every week, which is really great. Um, even when I work with the park services actively, um, our monitoring might take place once a month. So being able to go out every week is really a treat. What I'm seeing now is that uh, as the water temperature is cooling back to normal level, it is about 82 degrees now, which is well within the coral's comfort level, um, 85, 85 and a half. Fahrenheit is is kind of the upper thermal tolerance. So we're well within the comfort level. So the coral reef right now just looks like a mosaic. There are some corals that are still bright white. There are corals where the edges of the colonies are back to their normal colors, and there's a gradient of tan to yellow to pale to almost white to really you know, kind of a bright yellow towards the center. And you're like, oh, okay. So that species recolonizes with zooxanthellae from the edge and it, it reforms back into the middle. But then you see another colony in that species that it's all speckled. So there's like dime-sized spots all over it because the color is coming back in all these speckled formations. And so that, who knows what's happening there. And then you see another one where the color seems to be coming back from the middle and the edges are pale. So that doesn't seem to fit any kind of known pattern, but it's just this mosaic of a system that's trying to reboot itself and get back to normal. Coral bleaching, when the reef is mass bleached like it was, is an amazing thing to see because all the live coral pops out white. It, it just it just dominates your field of vision, all the white stuff that's in the water. And if you know oh, that's sad, you're like, wow, that, that's kind of sad. They're starving. But you look at this, this seascape of whiteness and you see how much live coral is still there. Because when the color is normal within the coral, it blends in. So the coral doesn't stand out as much. You you have to like seek it out. The the coral structures aren't as obvious because they're the greenish, the brownish, the maroon, the dark reds, and the their their colors are more modeled and blend in with the algae and and the sponges and the other organisms in the background of the reef. So we're in that transition from the stark white situation, the stark white coloring to now this modeled mosaic that will then go to the, the normal coloration of the reef. And you know, the bleaching doesn't mean that the reef is dead. It, it, that's a, a, a common misconception. It just means that the reef is in critical condition, right? So if I'm not eating, I'm not dead. I'm just not meeting my nutritional needs. If I don't eat for months, problem's going to happen. So the corals, they're alive. They're very much as alive as they were before they bleached. The bleaching is just a condition that may cause their mortality if that bleaching continues for an extended period of time. Right. And that's the concern is with this 2023 bleaching episode, it was the magnitude of the stress. The water got so warm. It got historically warm. 
and it's been warm for a long time. That's what we're really concerned about. So yeah, the waters have cooled right down, but it's been two and a half months of this really difficult condition. And we're hoping that these corals are able to survive and transition back to their normal colors. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about the comfort zone temperature-wise for corals, it's really a pretty small window, isn't it? I mean, if you're saying 85 is is really okay for them, if it gets up to 87 or so, that's when the trouble starts, right? Right. So a colleague was just sharing some information with me. Um, the South Florida Caribbean Network monitors both here in the Caribbean and in South Florida. Here in the Virgin Islands, the range of where those corals are comfortable, you know, is or the range that they experience is between usually 78 degrees and 85, 86 degrees. We don't vary much between that. Florida, the range is much bigger. So again, same species of corals, different geographic locations, they're able to tolerate different thermal ranges. So the thermal tolerance of a coral in Florida is different than the thermal tolerance of a coral in the Virgin Islands. Plus, the thermal tolerance of a coral here in the Virgin Islands in shallow water. A coral that spends, you go snorkeling at Trump Bay Trail, which you and your wife probably did. Those corals are in 10 feet or less. And they're used to waters warmer than that same species of coral here in the Virgin Islands that grows at 60 feet. And that coral is used to a thermal range different than corals that grow at 130 feet. So they're they're really particular about the the environment they like to grow in, and it is a very fairly narrow band uh, of of temperature here in the Virgin Islands. Yeah. What what about um, too cold of water? Do you ever have that situation? And and what temperature are we talking about? And and how do the corals respond to that? Fortunately, we don't have many cold water events here in the Virgin Islands, so I'm pretty happy about that. And um, most all my coral work and, and experience has been here in the Caribbean. Um, I do work with the monitoring group in South Florida, and there are cold water events that cause bleaching and mortality on the other end of the scale that takes place in a place like Florida where they're much more vulnerable to cold fronts that that come down from the north and bring cold water events with them and there can be significant mortality associated with those as well i apologize i can't remember that low end number on the thermal tolerance of corals um i want to say it's down in the low 70s but there's a paper by um manzello who is one of the contributors i think to the uh the ove paper or that you read reference in your National Parks Traveler magazine article that Derek Manzello, who who did a lot of work on the cold water event that recently went through Florida maybe 10 years ago now. So there is that that other range that that can cause mortality. Talking about the mass coral bleaching event um, it was, has been in the news that we're talking about, can you put a percentage on the number of reefs surrounding the parks there in the Caribbean that have been impacted by coral bleaching? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any, I don't, the, this one was so ubiquitous that the level of water warming was so pervasive, not, and not just the Virgin islands, but, but throughout the Caribbean. Um, I, I was thinking about this today. I don't know about the Southern Caribbean, but certainly around the Northern Caribbean, 
it's it's been very bad and it, it bleached in South Florida as well. So this this was ubiquitous, you know, at least all the parks within the Virgin Islands. How did it compare to the 2005 event? It was very similar to the 2005 event. Um, the big difference in the reef between now and 2005 is there's just less coral. So the 2005 bleaching event was coupled with an outbreak of coral disease we called at the time white plague. And the mortality that we saw take place after the 2005 bleaching event was a combination of the coral disease white plague and mortality from the coral bleaching event in 2005. When those two factors combined, our data shows that the coral cover at monitoring sites here in the Virgin Islands and off St. Croix declined by over 60%. Okay, a 60% decline in coral cover is absolutely devastating. Um, we don't find that kind of loss in reef building corals, the massive corals, the brain corals, the star corals. We don't find that level of decline in, in the fossil record, in, in the geologic record. But um, that's what we, we, our data shows happened in that 2005 to 2007. And most of that mortality came from the coral disease that occurred after the coral bleaching. So it was a one-two punch. It was a little bit of coral disease going in, massive bleaching episode, everything bleached, very similar to what we saw it now. And then as the corals began to recover from the thermal stress of the bleaching, they seemed to get very vulnerable to the coral disease white plague. And we had a two-year outbreak or a two-year burst of mortality from the coral disease white plague. And when that finally leveled out in 2007, the corals had declined, the coral cover had declined by 60%. Coral cover is just think of the hair on your head. Some heads are covered by more coral, some heads are covered by more hair than others. So that's how we measure the amount of coral on the bottom is how much of the bottom is covered by live coral. So we lost, we lost a great amount of coral from that 2005 event to where we are today. So it went, you know, our monitoring sites went from over 20%. Some had nearly 25% live coral cover down to 10 and 11%. That, that's devastating. I mean, that's really, really, um, that's, that's a, a seascape altering event. And that was bad news. Now we fast forward to 2023. And you originally asked me, how does this compare to the 2005 bleaching event? It was as bad. And we are very concerned because we've just had five years of stony coral tissue loss disease throughout Florida and the Caribbean. And that has been another equally devastating coral disease. Yeah. So now where we started in pre-2005, we had 20, 25% coral cover. Now we were down to 10 when this began. We had hurricanes Irma and Maria that shook up that 10 and 12% coral cover. 
Then we had stoning coral tissue loss disease as a second punch that has really affected the corals. And now we've got a third punch, which is this, this bleaching episode. And I know that all sounds really, really bad, but the way I like to think about it is what it means is every living piece of coral is now more important than ever before. Sure. When you say 10% coral cover or 20% coral cover, what, what's the percent? What are you measuring against? The seafloor? Yeah. 20% of the seafloor is covered by live coral. So 25%. So imagine putting down a meter square, a quadrat, or if, if you were snorkeling on the surface and looking down at the bottom, you could say, well, it looks like about a quarter of the bottom is covered by live coral. That's a lot. How much were you looking at prior to the 2005 bleaching event? The data has some that were near 30%, but rarely over 30%. Um, and those are good numbers for the Caribbean. I mean, there are many places that are, are much lower than that. And there's what affects that number is, is measurement techniques and, and sample design. You know, So we're very confident in those numbers and, and be able to detect trends within that number. So there are most places that would be thrilled to have 25% coral cover. That would be, I think, in fact, the, um, the big coral initiative in South Florida is trying to have 20% coral cover. But yeah, 25% coral cover is, is great, is really good. So now we're down to 10 and we're rapidly approaching single digits. Yeah, there's concern. I, I know that um, this uh, bleaching event could continue over into early 2024 if the El Nino stretches out. So our, we're going into our fall and, and winter season now. So the bleaching event is subsiding because the corals are no longer under thermal stress. Right now, they're in recovery from thermal stress mode. So I would say the bleaching episode is abating. At some point in January, February, and March, it's very likely, we're extremely hopeful, and our experience has shown that the corals will be normally colored. Some will take probably into January to get that way, but most things that are going to survive will have got their coral color back by middle of winter here in, in the Caribbean. But that means now in Australia, they're in their major thermal stress and they may be experiencing significant bleaching. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if, if that's going to carry over in, into their reefs. So that would be how the bleaching episode passes around the world is seasonally. So I would consider our bleaching episode here over. And right now, the corals are recovering from this mass bleaching event. We're talking today with Jeff Miller, a retired National Park Service fisheries biologist, about uh, coral bleaching in the Caribbean around Virgin Islands National Park and the other units there. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to introduce our upcoming seven-month certificate special set to launch on November 1st, 2023. 
This limited time offer features a competitive 5.75% annual percentage yield. It's a great way to make your savings work harder for you. Please note that this special rate is available for new funds only. If you've been exploring options to grow your savings, remember to mark November 1st on your calendar. We're here to help you achieve your financial goals. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So, Jeff, as you, as you mentioned uh, a little while ago, it's not just the, uh, the warming ocean waters, the coral bleaching that is impacting, negatively impacting the reefs. You've got other events. You had the, the hurricanes, Irma and Maria, back in 2017, September of 2017, and they caused a lot of physical damage to the reefs, as I understand it, um, I guess both between the, the rough waters and, and whatever flowed off of the island into the, into the ocean. Is that the correct? Right. Hurricanes are tremendously devastating forces of energy in marine systems. And the reefs do a phenomenal job in surviving those events, but there is mortality associated with them. Let me get into the ecology here briefly. Corals are, are animals that secrete a calcium carbonate skeleton. I mean, it's complete, it's just absolutely amazing. They, they make like concrete out of seawater. I mean, that is really cool. So they're growing their skeleton. And when you're alive, you're growing your skeleton and you're growing a structure. That structure, that we call it the rugosity, the three-dimensionality, that's everything. Because that's what attracts everything else. That structure is also the barrier to wave energy. So as massive storm waves generated by hurricanes are coming on shore, it is the structure of the reef that impedes that energy before that wave energy gets to the shoreline of the island. So the reefs, think of them as the front door to the island. The storm's energy has to pass through that front door first, through those reefs. So as long as you have healthy reefs, your front door is shut. And it's in good, strong shape. But as the reefs die, they no longer secrete calcium carbonate. They no longer are able to grow a skeleton. Then they're subjected to bioerosion. There are all sorts of organisms that are chewing away at the reef. Well, when you're alive, you can defend yourself against those. But when you're dead, you can't. So those bioeroding organisms perforate 
the skeleton of the coral and it weakens your front door. So then you get massive storms like Irma and Maria that come through and your front door is not very solid. It's been bio eroded because in 2005, what, 13, 14, 15 years before you had your massive coral bleaching and coral disease events that caused 60% of your growth to decline. That combined meant that the energy released upon the reefs by Irma and Maria were on a weakened structure, on a weakened reef, because they had been bio-eroded in that decade since the 2005 event. That weakened structure is vulnerable to collapse. And as the three-dimensionality of your reef collapses, that's when all your interstitial reef apartment dwellers go somewhere else. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask, I mean, what does this what impact does this have on the the fisheries, the, the the different marine life that relies on those structures, I guess both for for shelter but as well as for for food. Right. So it can have a catastrophic effect. So as that three-dimensionality crumbles and as it it, it erodes and think of those storms as just a mass massive acute erosional process, if it breaks down that framework severely, then you lose that three-dimensional structures and your fish communities that have to relocate, go somewhere else or they get eaten. I mean, it's it's that you, you lose those communities. So this can be a very long process. I mean, it can be 50 years, it can be a hundred year long process, but it all starts with the loss of the calcification of your reefs. And then what that means to us, you know, is is that wave energy isn't dampened upon the reef. That wave energy gets to our shorelines. And so you couple sea level rise with a subsiding, a shrinking reef. That means that storm energy is instead of being stopped on the reefs offshore South Florida, now will permeate onto the shoreline in South Florida with much more energy than they would have had those healthy reefs been there to create that healthy front door. You know, a couple of years ago or a year ago, um, when your when your colleagues, Carol, Carolyn Rogers, who worked at the USGS at the time before she retired, um, wrote uh, an article for the traveler looking at um, the... Um, stony coral tissue disease and the impacts that it was having on um, the ecology of the reef systems in the around the Virgin Islands National Park and for all I know around you know St. Thomas and whatnot St. Croix and she equated it with a, a catastrophe on the scale of um, maybe the Yellowstone fires can can we put this in perspective I mean a lot of people I don't think think about underwater and the, the ecology that exists underwater. And can we, can we frame it as an equivalent, as an equivalent to what's... One of the challenges we have with reef ecology and reef awareness is reefs are hard to see. I mean, a lot of people don't know what they're looking at when you look at the reefs. And putting these impacts, the 2005-2000 bleaching, uh, bleaching and disease events, Hurricanes, Ermin, Maria, the stony coral tissue loss disease, those all 
are impacts on the equivalent scale of a Yellowstone fire. They are, and, and I say that because they are multi-species affecting, they affect the entire ecosystem, the marine ecosystem, over a very large scale. This isn't an isolated event. This isn't a, a two-mile stretch off of this shoreline. This is ubiquitous. It, it is a very large footprint. So it is a very large ecosystem-wide impact. And this is our fourth one. I mean, there's been one Yellowstone fire, but we've had the 2005-2007 bleach and disease event. We've had the two Category 5 hurricanes in 2017 within two weeks. We've had stony coral tissue loss disease, and now we've got a, a mass bleaching event. You know, any one of those would be substantial. Any one of those is a Yellowstone fire, but those are four in, you know, in less than 20 years. It makes it very difficult for the reefs to recover because you don't have a fully intact system. If I just had a little bit of a problem, or if, if I had just one of them, then there would be more resistant structure, more resistant organisms within the system to bounce back. But there have been all these major impacts that cause significant problems. So in looking at that type of damage scale-wise? I mean, let's start simply. I mean, the, the Trunk Bay Water Trail is a very popular aspect of visitors going to Virgin Islands National Park. It, has that been adversely impacted as far as bleaching? Yeah, it, it definitely has. There, there's been a lot of change there. But what's absolutely amazing is there are still really cool live animals there. I mean, there are there's a thing called mustard hill coral that has done really well. And it is it is there in abundance and really cool to look at. It is a calcifying coral and it makes structure and that's all good. So everything is there for things still to grow, which is the really good news in in mixed in with these four devastating impacts is that there's good things still happening. There's baby corals still out there growing. Yeah. You know, still takes place growth is still happening the conditions are still right for coral to grow we just really need to take care of what's there well yeah i'm wondering about that i mean obviously you know humans don't have any control over um, hurricanes um, obviously we've got some control over climate change and we're, we're struggling to try and get our arms around that. But but what can the average visitor to the Virgin Islands National Park and other marine parks do to help protect these very sensitive creatures? I mean, I think that's the most important I want to leave people with is, is there are very distinct things we can do. One, understand a little bit about this system. Understand that coral is an animal. It's not a rock. It's not a thing. It's not a stump. It's not a, a dead thing. It is a living animal that produces offspring. It sequesters a tremendous amount of carbon. It and its associated ecosystems, coral reefs and seagrass communities, sequester a lot of carbon, which is really, really good. It, it does a, it performs a lot of good ecosystem services for we humans, as well as being a really cool organism and ecosystem to look at. So that's number one is understand 
a little bit about what this is. What's the difference between a hard coral and a soft coral? What's the difference between those corals and sponges? Can I identify the difference? And just look through books and, and learn a little bit about them so that when you're looking in, a wat in the water snorkeling, you have an idea of what you're looking at. Second thing, now that you know what they are, don't step on them. Don't kick them. Don't bring nasty chemicals to them. And by nasty chemicals, I mean things like sunscreens that when we put them on our body, that leach off of our body and then dissolve in the water and then leach into the bottom, which coats the corals. So look at the, the labeling on the sunscreen and some of them say reef safe, but look, look at the ingredients and look for the things that have the oxy stuff. That's not a real good product for the marine environment and corals. So those are things you can do. Look at that label on your sunscreen, not necessarily just the wording for reef safe, but, but you want it to be some of the more um, titanium dioxide or, or easiest thing to do is to wear UV resistant clothing when you snorkel. It's easy to snorkel in it. It keeps the, the sunlight off of you from getting any sunburn and um, you're not putting the chemicals on yourself. Don't litter. I mean, stuff we leave on the land washes down into the water every time it rains. The plastic trash blows. I've got hundreds of towels in my house that people leave on the beach. I go to the beach early in the morning. I avoid the traffic. There's leftover towels. There's not a footprint in the sand. I know this, the towels have been left there overnight. The wind's going to blow them in the water. They're going to tangle up into the bottom, and it's going to kill things. Every living piece of coral is more important than ever before. If you bring it to the beach, take it home with you. Throw, away, throw it in a trash can. We were hiking today out by Lamisher Bay. Three trash cans sitting by the side of the road. They were all full. People were putting the trash in the bags outside the trash can. You can't do that because animals will get into the trash and then spread the trash around because now the bag is torn. So think about what's happening to the stuff. We bring our stuff to the islands when we come visit. We bring our stuff. I think it's our responsibility to, to reduce, to minimize, to, to remove all of our stuff from the environment when we leave. So bring your towels with you. Bring your glasses back from the beach. If you brought a, bought a, a drink and you're drinking it, make sure you take that glass back with you. Another thing you can do is, is not collect items, right? If you see that shell, that beautiful shell, oh my gosh, that would look great at home on our table. Leave it there. You know, that shell is home to somebody. There's a crab, I promise you, living down inside that shell. Or that shell is going to go back into the water. The waves will wash it back in and it will get cemented by the natural processes that occur and become substrate. And remember, it's all about substrate. It's all about creating the three-dimensionality, and that's what brings in all those cool fish you want to look at. So that shell that's on the beach in six months may be part of the structure in the water, and that helps bring fish to it. So if we take that home, it doesn't serve its ecological function, and we lose that. Besides, it's part of the park. I won't take your part of the park, and you can leave my part of the park there too. If you're out in a boat, know whether or not you can drop an anchor. Okay, Most of these parks are marine protected areas. We're counting on people to know they can't 
drop an anchor in those parks. This just completely blows my mind. People will spend a tremendous amount of effort to come to these beautiful national parks and they'll want to go snorkel and see these beautiful things. So they rent a boat and then they drop 35 pounds of metal onto the very thing that they worked so hard to come here and visit because it was so beautiful. And they go snorkeling. They say, okay, that's kind of cool. That's nice. Oh, that part around the anchor, that's kind of messed up. But they don't associate the fact that they just dropped the anchor that did the damage on the part that they came to see because it was so beautiful. This is the part of removing our impact. Use a mooring buoy. Pick up a line, lay it on your boat, tie it to the cleat, and that way you don't have to drop an anchor, and the anchor doesn't do the damage. It's the anchor, the chain. It just, it just does unbelievable damage to the bottom. You got to know where you're driving in a boat because there are far too many boat groundings here in the national park. And every time a boat goes ashore, it crunches coral. So we got to make sure, I mean, driving a boat's not like renting a car. Everybody rents a car and you can give them a credit card and they'll give you a boat. <laughs> but you got to know how to drive the boat. And when you tie up to the mooring, you got to know what kind of knot to tie so that when you go snorkel, the boat will be there when you come back. And it's not on the shore somewhere damaging a bunch of coral. Know the kind of, of seafood you eat. If you're going to eat seafood, know what kind of seafood it is you're eating. Because that seafood... If it is a reef-associated fish, has an ecological function on the reef. It is likely to be an herbivore. And that herbivorous fish is one of our animals that removes large fleshy plants. We call those macroalgae. And we count on those herbivores removing the algae so new baby corals have a place to grow. The algae grow fast. The corals grow slow. So we get our herbivores to come in and they eat the plants so that the baby corals have a place to grow. If we're eating the herbivores, they're not in the water doing their job. So how does eating a fish affect coral? It does. So what species are we talking about? Right. Parrotfish, surgeonfish, doctorfish, tangs. Those are some of the big herbivores. And you're like, well, she's who eats those? Well, the fact of the matter is there's been a lot of DNA testing on fish and the kind of fish the menu says it is and the restaurant says it is, is not necessarily the kind of fish that you're getting. So it's really hard to tell, but it's supply and demand. If people go in and say, I'm in the islands, I want to eat seafood, people will go out and catch it. And if what they're catching is herbivores, then we're going to be eating herbivores and they play a much more ecological service. Um, now, if you're out in open ocean and you throw over a line and you catch a fish and, you know, it's a, a mahi-mahi or it's a tuna and, and you put in a line and you pull out a fish, you know, that that's a nice meal because there's not a lot of ecological damage associated with that. But if those fish are caught by a long line where there's 90% incidental kill and, and species are thrown back because of the wrong size of the wrong species, and that's what's being served for dinner downstream, down the line, down in a restaurant in Atlanta, or, you know, that that's a problem that starts here in reefs. So there are a number of seafood guides that help people understand what kind of fish is more sustainable. 
and talk to your restaurateur. I mean, talk to the owner and say, where do you get your fish? You know, how do you know that what you're getting is, is what you say? I mean, if you're really invested in this restaurant and having this meal, do a little work and find out because the environment needs that effort. Lastly, my last thing here is um, use your voice. You know, if you can become an advocate for reefs, reefs are out of sight. You know, people drive around the island all the time. They look out over the beautiful blue water and they go, this is a gorgeous place. And they don't see what's going on under the water. I distinctly remember being in the office with Caroline in 2005 when we were watching stuff die. And she was like, man, I just can't believe that if people would be driving by the Redwood Forest and see as much of the Redwood Forest die as we're seeing now, I can't believe they would be okay with it. So what I did is um, I worked with a colleague of mine, Jed Patterson, and we took four national parks, Mount Rushmore, the Washington Monument, Statue of Liberty, and the Colorado Front Range. We did a couple of more. We did one of the famous arches and arches, and we made 60% of them disappear in a, a PowerPoint presentation. And I've given hundreds of presentations over my career from, from Coral Reef Task Force to professional meetings. And I show the slides that show these land-based iconic national parks with 60% loss. And if let's say 60% of the Statue of Liberty disappeared, would people be okay with that? You know, if mm. instead of four heads on Mount Rushmore, there were one and a half and the other parts were just crumbled down, would people say, well, that's a little different, but eh, it's all right. That's what's happened underwater. Over 60% loss of the coral cover. And people are like, this is great. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. And it is. There's very cool things. But it's in a lot of ways, it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I mean, if 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 we could get to our politicians, if we could get to our leaders to say, look, these reefs are in trouble and they need help, that we need to to fund our parks back at an appropriate level for the modern day, then they could have the staff to talk to the boaters before, before they drop the anchors. You know, we could do that outreach where the damage is occurring and stop that problem from happening yeah because every, every coral that's out there now survived 2005 to 2007 it survived the hurricanes it survived the diseases and now we're going to drop an anchor on it i mean holy smokes what a mess that's the survivor and that's the coral that's going to make the reefs of the future is there a specific advocacy group that people could reach out to to get involved with the Friends of Virgin Isles National Park are a great group. There's a park, the the National Parks Traveler. I mean, is a is a good organization um, that is allowing people to to learn about these systems, and, and that's really great. I appreciate the opportunity to 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 speak to your to your members. Um, I appreciate the, the plug. Na the Nature Conservancy does a good group, uh, does good work. Um, I also work for a group called Core Foundation which is the Caribbean Outreach Research and Education Group. Um, there's a, another challenge within parks of invasive species. We have the invasive lionfish, and CORE has done a tremendous 
job in in helping do a sustained population reduction of invasive lionfish within the parks around Virgin Isles National Park. They're a, they're a tremendous organization that people can get involved with. Um, they're beginning to do some coral nursery now work work now, and they're um, they've done a lot of work. We've treated over 5,000 corals for stony coral tissue loss disease. So there are groups out there that do really good advocacy groups, and a lot of it is is getting in touch with the politicians, getting reaching out to the superintendents, say, hey, I was here 20 years ago, I was here now. Big difference. What's going on? And and see what the superintendents have to say. You know, are are they hearing from the visitors that you know the visitors are are seeing these changes take place? I want to stress it still is a really beautiful place. You know, there's no doubt there's been change. I mean, I had a lot more hair 30 years ago than I do now. <laughs> so change is is the one thing we we know is going to happen. The challenge in the marine environment has been, in the coral reefs, has been the rate of change. This, this rate of change has been so fast. I mean, what usually takes place in geologic time has taken place in my career, and that's caused a lot of hair loss. So that's why our advocacy, either through groups or through our actions, just being in the water, um, is is what's really going to turn the tide here. We're going to have to leave it there, Jeff. I appreciate your time. That's Jeff Miller, a National Park Service fisheries biologist who, before he retired in 2021, worked with the South Florida Caribbean Inventory and Monitoring Network on developing a coral and fisheries monitoring program around Virgin Islands National Park, and he still volunteers with that network to do the good work that needs to be done. Jeff, thanks so much, and hopefully um, we'll be able to, to visit in uh, happier times down the road. Not a problem. It'd be great to see you. Let me know if you're coming down. Thanks for having me on. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting. Here at The Traveler, we're in our final two weeks of fundraising in an effort to keep the lights on. Our immediate goal is to raise $200,000 by the end of June. If you find our podcast interesting and enjoy the written content on nationalparkstraveler.org, I hope you'll be able to send us a donation to help with our fund drive you can find a donate button on the upper right-hand corner of our website. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.